she had not left his side. She had been slipping in and out of a coma for several months, yet she had stayed by his bedside every single day. The morning he came to, he motioned for her to come near. As she sat by him, he whispered, eyes full of tears, you know what? You have been with me through all the bad times. When I got fired, you were there to support me. When my business failed, you were there. When we lost the house, you did not leave. When my health started failing, you were still by my side. When I was recovering from heart surgery, you stayed near me. Do you know what I'm starting to think? And smiling as her heart began to fill with warmth, she gently asked, what is that? And she looked deeply into his eyes and he stared back at hers and said, I think you're bad luck. Faithfulness. We each have an idea of what we think that looks like, but what if what we consider to be faithfulness is not viewed as such by others? Most importantly, what if we consider to be faithfulness is not what the Bible considers to be faithfulness? We're continuing our summer sermon series in Galatians chapter 5 where the Apostle Paul lays out what he calls the fruit of the Spirit. And when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, he's talking about the evidence manifesting itself in the life of a believer in which uh, that shows that God is in the process of changing them from what they once were, an enemy of God's wrath, to a child of God molded into the image of Jesus. I wonder you're visiting with us uh, this morning and you're just now beginning to explore what faith in Christ may entail or whether you're a believer who thinks you've got a firm grip on what it means to be faithful, it is good for each of us, no matter our background, no matter our story, to check our work, if you will, over and against the objective standard that is God's word, namely the Holy Scriptures. So we're going to read again this morning from Galatians 5, beginning in verse 16. We're going to continue reading through verse 25. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. We've got some in the pew racks in front of you. And if you're looking for our text, you'll find it on page 975 of those pew Bibles. But as you turn, let me remind you, the Word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces asunder between the morrow, the soul, and the spirit. It's a critic of the thoughts and the intent of our hearts. All Scripture is God-breathed, and as such, it is useful for reproof, rebuke, correction, and instruction in righteousness. The Word of God is without error and without fallacy. It's divine in its origin. It's inspired in its totality. It's inexhaustible in its adequacy. It's regenerative in its power by God's Holy Spirit. It heals the hurting. It humbles the haughty. It's personal. It's poignant. It's powerful. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but not this. This is God's word, and it stands forever. So whatever you may neglect and whatever you may take for granted, let it not be this. Let's turn our attention to the reading and the preaching of God's word for each and every one of us gathered here today or viewing via live stream. This is God's word. He says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. 
sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Gracious and loving God, like many in this room, those watching via live stream or listening to a recording at some future time, I too can be easily distracted. Just as we do in personal relationships and conversations, we often confuse honest hearing and lackadaisical listening. We can confuse proximity with presence. We can confuse the God we want with you, the God who is. We often delight in and seek meaning in lesser things. Some of us are here this morning, but we honestly can't imagine why. We're here at the invitation or the badgering of another, and we think if we just show up once, we'll be granted reprieve. Our expectations are low or non-existent. Like the man who wrote this letter named Paul, if our lives are going to change, you're going to have to reveal yourself to us in a very unexpected way and with unmistakable presence. Others of us are here in almost unspeakable shame and guilt. We believe if those around us knew what we were really like, the doors or the rows we're sitting in would never be open to us. Our backs are bent. Our burdens are breaking us. And we feel as though we can't go on. You promise us that your burden is light. But we doubt that you would be willing or able to take ours. However it is we approach it this day, would you speak very clearly through a very flawed messenger? Would you quicken our hearts to experience your deep love and understanding of us? Would you speak ever so clearly, truthfully, and yes, lovingly to us, whatever our life story? And Father, as we ask each week, so I ask again today, speak, O Lord, for your servants listen. In Christ's name, amen. When the Apostle Paul mentions faithfulness as a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, he is talking about the fullness of faith, meaning all that it entails. And as I dove into the study of this passage and started thinking about what true biblical faithfulness is, I'm convinced it's much more than we often think. In fact, that which is often passed off as faithfulness in, actual, in actuality stands over and against true biblical faithfulness. Do not miss that. You may want to write that down. I'll repeat it. That which is often passed off as faithfulness in actuality stands over and against true biblical faithfulness. To understand the truthfulness of this proposition, all you have to do is look at the number of times that Jesus is accused of being unfaithful to God and unfaithful to the scriptures. The Bible is adamant about this. Jesus was without sin, Hebrews 4, 15. And Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it perfectly in all of its aspects, Matthew 5, 15. And yet, time and time again, 
Jesus was accused by those appearing to be most concerned about honoring God. They were the ones accusing Jesus of being unfaithful and going against what the Bible taught and demanded. We don't have time to look at them all, but let's just take a small sample set of times where something Jesus does may look or may not look faithful, but it actually is. When it doesn't look faithful, but it actually is. You see the scripture references there in your outline. Early on in the book of Mark, back-to-back instances of Jesus being accused of being unfaithful while uh, not not going with what scripture says regarding the Sabbath. He's accused of being unfaithful to the scripture's commands regarding the Sabbath. The first comes up at the end of chapter 2. Jesus is walking through grain fields with his disciples. They begin to pluck the heads of the grain and, and snack on them. Now the biblical law said you were not to glean your fields on the Sabbath. But instead you were to rest from all forms of work. So it appeared to the religious elite that Jesus and his disciples were being unfaithful. In response to that accusation, Jesus reminded them of something that happened with David, the king. They would have revered every Sabbath in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. The old bread of presence that was used uh, in tabernacle and temple worship was exchanged for fresh loaves. The old loaves were reserved for the priests because they, had, because they, like the bread, had been set apart wholly unto the Lord. The bread was not to be viewed as just kind of common, ordinary bread. That was the point. Yet according to Scripture, when David and his men were fleeing King Saul, they came to the sanctuary of Nob, and the high priest fed them from the bread of presence, which according to the law, again, was reserved for the priest. And yet, because his men were hungry and in need of food, David and his men were fed. Jesus is saying that neither the high priest nor David's action violated the ceremonial law. And neither did the disciples snacking on the heads of wheat on the Sabbath. It was a misplaced rabbinical regulation. It did not run afoul to God's commandment. Jesus was accused of being unfaithful. But he wasn't. In the beginning of chapter 3, they came after Jesus again for violating the Sabbath. This time because he healed a man with a withered hand. They said this act of kindness constituted, again, work on the Sabbath. Therefore, his healing on the day set aside by God for rest would have been offensive to God. And Jesus dismissed their charges as frivolous. And then, in love and compassion, he healed the crippled man's hand. His actions were viewed as unfaithfulness when, in fact, wasn't. Remember when Jesus was asked about the greatest commandment in the law? Remember what his answer was? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. And he said the second is like it. Love your neighbors as much as you love yourself. You see, those who accuse Jesus of being faith or unfaithful and liberal with the demands of the biblical law set the first and the second of the greatest commandments over and against one another. They were willing, in order to uphold the first, to neglect the second. And not just in these instances, but they did it time and time again. And each time, Jesus corrects them. Here's one more. John chapter 2. We read about Jesus fashioning a whip 
and turning over tables and driving the money changers uh, and merchants from the temple. There were specific sacrifices accepted in temple worship. And people from towns and countries near and far would come, and some would need uh, to purchase items for sacrifice. But there was only a certain type of currency that was acceptable in the temple, and it was called the Tyrian currency. So these tables were set up so that if you were from another country or location, you needed to exchange your currency, you could do so. Give us your money, we'll exchange it for the right acceptable type of Tyrian currency. That doesn't seem like that big of a deal, does it? However, those of you who do traveling a lot, think about the times that you've gone to exchange currency in, say, the airport. You know that you don't get the best rate at return on your money, transferring it to another currency at an airport. Why? Because they've jacked up the prices, because they know they have you. So for convenience, they charge you more. Or maybe you haven't exchanged money at the airport. But why is it that an Ed McMuffin costs so much more at the airport than it does just a few blocks over at McDonald's on Poplar? Or why is it that my bottle of water at the St. Louis Convention Center just a couple of weeks ago for our denomination's General Assembly cost me $4 when I can go to Kroger and get the exact same bottle for less than one. Why is that the case? Because they know they've got you. And so they jack up the prices. The same was true here. Those over temple worship had moved the money changers from outside the temple into the temple into what was called the court of the Gentiles, one of the outermost courts. But in doing so, they were doing so for the convenience of it. They began making it much more expensive for people to come and bring their sacrifices for worship. And the religious were making it extra difficult on the poor and the outsiders to come. And Jesus would have none of it. <laughs> Hence the whip and the overturned tables and the running out of the money changers. And for that, he was accused of being unfaithful. When in fact, he was honoring his father while loving his neighbors by not allowing price gouging with temple sacrifices. His actions didn't look like faithfulness. But it was. There's a lesson there for each of us as we sit here today. Do not readily accept the charge of unfaithfulness until you measure it against the totality of Scripture. With that being said, there are also times where something we do doesn't look unfaithful, but it actually is. There's an example of that just a few chapters earlier from our main text. Paul talks about a confrontation he had with the Apostle Peter in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Feel free to turn back and look at that, but I'll read you the relevant passage beginning in verse 11. It says, But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all, 
If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like a Jew? Remember the backdrop to this. Peter, a disciple, practicing Jew, was at home one day when he had a vision of a tablecloth coming down from heaven with all kinds of animals, and he was told by the voice, commanded by the voice, to rise and eat. Peter refuses because the foods were forbidden according to the religious dietary laws. But God responds by saying, what God calls clean, do not call unclean. Now we know by what follows, this was not just limited to dietary restrictions. It was God's way of saying that the covenant promises that Peter enjoyed were true now for Gentile, non-Jewish people as well. And God sends Peter from his Jewish home to the Gentile home of Cornelius, a Gentile, to share the gospel. What had happened on a micro scale in Acts chapter 10, Peter going from his house to the house of Cornelius, was now happening on a macro scale because Peter was going from the Jewish capital of Jerusalem to the Gentile capital of Antioch. And while in Antioch, Peter had been eating with the Gentiles. And not just eating with them, he was eating like them. Eating what they ate. Because he was, to, he was not to call anything impure that which God had made clean. And God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every tribe and nation and tongue. And we see in Paul's rebuke that in his actions, when his former friends showed up, these friends from James, it means friends from Jerusalem, when Peter's Jewish friends showed up, Peter stopped living out of the freedom of the gospel and went back to living the way in which he once did. And Paul calls him on it. Here's Paul's question. Why, Peter, are you making people who believe they are saved by Jesus act as though they're saved by something other than Jesus? I have a friend in seminary. I had several friends in seminary, but this one in particular, now an associate editor for Ligonier Ministries, wrote an article entitled, A Sophisticated Way of Denying the Gospel. And he wrote about this very confrontation between the Apostle Paul and Peter. And he made note of something that I had never thought of. Peter's wrong here cannot be explained as a moral failure on his part. Think about it. It's not a sin to sit at a table with his friends from Jerusalem. It's not a sin for him to eat a meal that did not include foods that non-Jewish people would typically eat. His sin was much more subtle and, to be honest, much more dangerous. That's what my friend writes. He says, we must remember that this wasn't strictly a moral violation. Peter wasn't stealing from Gentiles. He just wasn't eating with them. And then he asked this question, and it's worth our consideration. And if you wrote down what I said previously, you may want to write this one down as well. Here's the question. I wonder if that is a category most Christians have. Do we work as hard at avoiding gospel undermining behavior as we do at avoiding immoral behavior? Do we work as hard at avoiding gospel undermining behavior? as we do at avoiding immoral behavior. 
Paul asserts in Galatians 2:21, I do not accept the grace of God, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Peter's actions were an affront to God. Not because they were in and of themselves immoral, but because he was creating an environment subversive to the gospel. And in doing so, Paul says he was fostering an idea that Christ died for nothing. This is important to understand. Biblical faithfulness cannot be reduced to checking the boxes of orthodoxy, meaning right beliefs. Biblical faithfulness is the outworking of biblical orthodoxy, right beliefs, using biblical orthopraxy, right practice. Those are big theological words, but to say it a different way, biblical truths being expounded in unbiblical ways is biblical unfaithfulness. I don't know if you've noticed, but when Paul lists the fruits of the Spirit in verses 22 and 23, he does so over and against what he calls the desires of the flesh. Here's what I mean. For example, set against sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality is the fruit of the Spirit, love. Set over and against idolatry and sorcery is the Spirit's work of joy. Against enmity comes the work of peace. Do you notice what faithfulness is set over and against? It would be in opposition to at least one, if not more, of this list. Rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. It's fascinating to me. The Apostle Paul would talk about biblical faithfulness over and against Rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. But think about what we've talked about. Jesus never allowed for the keeping of the greatest commandment at the expense of the second greatest commandment, insisting one is honoring God while being unloving towards one's neighbor. Paul rebuked Peter because gospel undermining behavior is just as much a sin as immoral behavior. Orthodoxy, at the expense of orthopraxy, is unfaithfulness. Biblical truths being expounded in unbiblical ways is biblical unfaithfulness. This morning I have a confession, followed by a question, and then what I hope will be the biblical conviction of us all. Here's my confession. And as I tell you what I'm about to tell you, please do not get caught up in the circumstance. Just listen. I had a new roommate. Both of us were in ministry. He had just started a college ministry here in town, and I was working with the senior high youth of another church. We had only been living together for a few weeks. Some of his students saw a flyer posted around campus, what the Bible really says about homosexuality, Sunday, 1 p.m., and it gave the location, a storefront over on Highland Avenue. 
My roommate's students wanted to go. My roommate, as our campus minister, said he would go with them because he wanted to be able to discuss with them what they heard. And he invited me to go along. So we arrived just before 1 p.m., and when we walked in, two things became clear. First, it was a potluck lunch. The flyers did not mention that, and we hadn't brought anything. Secondly, the people who had gathered would today be identified as LGBTQ. I was out of my comfort zone. When my roommate politely remarked that we didn't know it was a potluck and tried to excuse us, the host graciously said, no, please, it's not a problem. We have more than enough, and we were invited to stay for lunch, and the discussion followed. My roommate, his college students, and I all went through the line and began to find seats at tables around the room. And I sat down, and soon across from me, one of the hosts found his seat in full makeup and a dress. This was the mid-1990s. It was the first time in my life that I had been in this situation. One of my roommate's students came and took the other seat across from me for the sake of anonymity this morning. I'm going to call him Charles. Charles was a sophomore and was often on the fringe of the group, mainly because he was awkward in social situations. He often didn't read the room or seem aware that he would overstep certain social acceptable bounds. It made for many an uncomfortable conversation. A few bites into our lunch, Charles looked across the table at me and began asking questions about his campus minister, my roommate, and me. So, Robert, how long have you guys known each other? And I responded, not long. We only met a month or so ago. And y'all just decided to go in and move together. My eyes widened a bit as I considered who was sitting directly across from me, how this might be interpreted, and I responded, yep, we both needed a roommate. So, while frantically trying to come up with a different line of conversation, but before I could say anything, and how's it going? You guys still like each other and everything? No fights? Nope, no fights. My face was turning red. I was shifting in my seat. Clearly, Charles wasn't thinking about how this could easily be misconstrued. And as I looked across my plate of spaghetti to the man in the dress with the full makeup, I smiled sheepishly, and Charles ended with, well, I am just happy for both of you. And I was angry. I couldn't believe the naivete of this college student. I was worried about my reputation and what others might think if they found out that I stayed for lunch, and I was uncomfortable with the whole dynamic, and I couldn't get out of there quick enough. After all, I was in ministry, and this could go really badly. Here's my confession. I mentioned it in my sermon a few weeks ago. Jesus was known for eating and drinking with and being friends with those deemed by the religious as being sinners. Jesus was patient with those who could have easily frustrated him and more than willing to identify with, associate with, and show love to those who were lost and in need of the gospel, even when he was accused of being unfaithful because of it. And looking back, here I was, angry with a college student because he asked a series of innocent questions, all because I thought about how it made me look 
And here I had the opportunity to listen to, ask questions of, and present the gospel to a man who clearly was broken and needed the love and grace and forgiveness of Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And yet I wanted no association with him. And I viewed my standing before God on my own merit as being much more acceptable. That's gospel undermining behavior. Biblical truths in unbiblical ways is biblical unfaithfulness. That's my confession. Here's my question. And it involves our current environment. If that lunch was today, and you were walking down Highland Avenue, and you saw me, or Sean, or Jeremy, or Brad, or Mike, or Ed, sitting at that same table with that same crowd, would your response be, there's one of my pastors being a faithful witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the way in which Jesus himself often did it? Or would it be, I knew it, just one more example of our ministers being liberal. Would your knee-jerk reaction be to pray for the work of the gospel going forth to the broken, the lost, and the hurting? Or would it be fodder for rivalries, divisions, and dissensions at IPC or to the East Memphis church gossip train? And here's my conviction, based on scripture, and I pray it's yours as well. Faithfulness is produced in the Christian by the Holy Spirit of God as an outworking and reflection of the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction and surety of things not seen. That's what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. The Bible teaches that I am made right before God by the finished work of Jesus Christ. By his active and passive obedience, Christ keeping perfectly every tenet of the biblical law and is taking the punishment for the breaking of those tenets of all believers upon himself by being crucified on the cross. So that I, as a Christian, am now justified, considered holy and righteous before God. That's what God promises in his word. And he who promised is faithful. Therefore, standing firm and unwavering in that promise, I am free as a Christian, to love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, and doing so by loving my neighbor as myself, not neglecting either at the expense of the other. So don't be fooled by the loud voices of carnival barkers peddling religious trinkets on Twitter masked as truth. Demanding adherence to custom, example, and self-interest to honor God at the expense of and over and against loving your neighbor. Jesus never pitted those two against the other and neither do his followers. True biblical faithfulness is trusting in the promises of the only one who is faithful, Jesus Christ, and living life out of the freedom and faithfulness found in him. Those who are in Christ do not stir up rivalries, dissensions, and divisions in the name of honoring God. That's not faithfulness. That's flesh. 
we are found faithful when we trust in the only one who is faithful. And we live and love each other as Christ loved us. So may God work this in each and every one of us by his spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. That's a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And he who promised is faithful. So whatever my lot, God has taught me to say, it is well with my soul because Jesus is faithful even when I'm not. Let's pray. Father, if this is going to happen in us, it is, as Paul says, a work of your spirit. It does not come naturally for us. For us to truly be faithful in accordance with your word. It means being faithful in all things. Yes, honoring you, but honoring you in the way in which we love our neighbors. Jesus never pitted those things against each other, and your people don't pit them against each other either. So, Father, I pray that we would not dishonor you by claiming that we are honoring you, our Father, and doing so by trying to stir up rivalries, defense divisions and dissensions within your church. The world is watching us. And you tell us that they will know that we are disciples by our love. Our love of you and our love for one another. So Father, some of us have some confessing to do. All of us have some confessing to do. I pray that you would forgive us for our dishonoring of you and our dishonoring of the bride that you love so much, that you were so patient with, that you were willing to go to the cross and die for. Rid us of these things. Work in us the fruit of your spirit, faithfulness. So that we will be found faithful to a world that is watching, but ultimately so that we will bring you all the honor and glory that you alone deserve. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.